Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Good morning. I hope you're comfortable. You've already had a little sneak preview to what the reading will be today. And the the reading is from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehukim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehukim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions 
and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. Well read. Long passage today. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us that it's a light to our feet, a guide to us so that we can know who you are and what you've done through history and and what you are going to do. Well, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for your spirit who enables us to understand your word and who translates those into into meaning that you have for us. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit we might hear your voice today and be people who act upon it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, watching the... uh, I don't know about you, but watching the evening news can be a pretty daunting experience these days. Uh, It's not just the sort of escalating... uh, violent youth crimes that we see on, on the TV, but we're presented with a, this sort of vast array of competing political, social, religious, economic agendas. All the time we're confronted by differences and uh, they, they, uh, they often draw people into conflict with each other and even with them, within themselves as we find a lot, of, a lot of things going on quite challenging. In fact, I often feel conflicted, tainted, emotionally challenged by what I see in the media. And um, as a follower of Jesus, I uh, find myself having these great ideals about what it means to follow Jesus. I have great ideas of living a life of love and of justice and integrity and purpose, just like you. Yet I wonder whether in reality I'm becoming more and more like the city in terms of its values, its attitudes, its ethics, and its mores. Sometimes the road grime, it's not just the road grime that's left sticking (laughs) To me, at the end of the day, yeah, I feel sometimes that I'm slowly being secularised without really knowing it. And perhaps you feel the same way. And sometimes we're actually shocked of the movement in our lives. And we haven't seen it coming. And suddenly you're there, compromised. Historically, people have actually fled cities and places where they felt their liberties were uh, eroded. In fact, a country like the United States of America was founded on people who were actually fleeing what they thought were oppressive situations in Europe uh, 
and they went to, to the US to experience religious liberty and freedom. And uh, some of you here today have come to Australia for similar reasons. The thing that we don't often realise, though, when we leave a home country and come to a, another country is actually in the new country there's going to be actually new challenges and different challenges uh, in the places that we go, particularly in regard to challenges to our culture, our social uh, understanding of life and our, and our understanding of, of, um, of religion and uh, what it means to honour God. And sometimes when we're confronted by those things, we can actually wonder whether the cost of that move is actually too great. I've thought that, and I'm sure that a number of you have as well. As you think even about raising kids in a world today, wow. I'm not sure how you're trying to survive life in a secular city and in an increasingly secular world, perhaps you haven't thought about it that much and have just gone along with the flow, unaware that you are slowly being changed. Others of you are even thinking, perhaps I'll head back to where I came from or to a place where you perceive that life will be less socially challenging or culturally challenging or religiously challenging. Others of you think, well, I've just got to hunker down, don't I? I've got to isolate myself. I've got to limit connections with the city and the world for me and my family, hoping that the storms of, of what we're experiencing will just sort of you know, pass overhead. Hopefully they're high enough to not impact me. You might be taking action to limit the impact of the city on your life and your family. I know people have thrown out their TVs. A friend of mine actually took great liberty and him and his family, they took their TV out and had great delight in smashing it. This was the old analogue, so I'm not sure what it did to the environment, but they, they did that until they couldn't stand it any longer and then they bought another one. Big flat screen. But people do those things because they see the bad influence on their life. Others have self-imposed media bans or they put filters on their devices. Uh, and these, I think these actions, they do work for a while, particularly with children, but they only work until your kid's about 10, <laughs> if that. And then they find ways of getting around those filters and around those bands, don't they? I was actually banned when I was 10 years old from watching World Championship Wrestling by my mum. What a travesty of justice. What an interruption to my life education that was. So every Saturday afternoon, I would ride my bike round to my friend Ivan Strasnicki's house, whose parents were much more understanding about the needs of 10-year-old boys for watching Mario Maloney jumping from the high ropes onto unsuspecting wrestlers so that we could then emulate him in the backyard afterwards and learning our best wrestling moves. I don't like bursting bubbles, but you need to know that fleeing and isolation are ultimately not successful long-term plans for surviving in a secular world. And they're not also biblical ideas 
or I believe they're not God's intention for people, for his people. Because eventually you and your, you and your child will find a way around the filter and you'll find a way you'll find a way you know back to to the things that you were you were fleeing so we're currently in a new series and the series is called following jesus in a secular world and in this series we we're looking at how to thrive in a world that is becoming increasingly secular and antagonistic to christian beliefs and values and practices and so the book of daniel has a lot to say about this topic, particularly the first six chapters, because it's about this, this uh, the, about six, about um, some Jewish youths, Jewish exiles, who uh, were taken from Jerusalem and other parts of Israel to captivity in Babylon. And uh, what we hear in this story is that they went on to thrive in a regime that was actually intent on deconverting them and instilling in them Babylonian values and worldview. And I think that this actually makes it a highly relevant book for us today. So Babylon, as we've already seen on the Mentimeter this morning, was a byword, has become a byword for any place that is decadent and immoral and that is anti-God. And so Babylon was one of the great cities, though, of the ancient times, and it, uh, it was actually ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a really clever king with a really grand plan for world domination. Just a small plan. And uh, in about 605 BC, he attacked Jerusalem. Uh, but instead of destroying it, instead of sacking the city uh, and everything in, every, everyone and everything in it, what he did was he, he took a bunch of people from that city exiles and he took them to his own city in Babylon, uh, Babylon um, to deconvert them and to instill in them a Babylonian worldview. And he, what he did is he carted off around 10,000 of the best and brightest young Jewish people to Babylon so he could influence them all, in all matters of life and, uh, and then return them influenced by him so that they could then go on and influence other people back in Israel. Basically, he wanted to change his captives' basic assumptions about life in regard to culture and society and about religion and about values and politics and about truth and meaning. He wanted to reconstruct the world in his own Babylonian image. And so today we live in a, a highly secular world. We no longer live in a state or country that is, that is uh, with its laws and values based on or that supports Christianity or that upholds Christian values. There is a, there's actually pressure, as you know, from every angle to become secular and to accept the prevailing uh, values of the city. But before we start shouting, ah, oh, that's evil, that shouldn't be allowed, we should we should actually ask ourselves a really important question. Where is God in this situation, in, in, the, uh, in the carting off of these young people to, to Babylon? Where is God? You see, we can automatically assume that God's absent, right? We can, uh, we can think, oh, God's been outmaneuvered. He's been defeated, <laughs> in the uh, carting off of these exiles of the Jews to Babylon. But this wasn't the case. 
You see, if you think, though, that God was not present in Babylon and that it was a disaster that, and that God, was power, that God was powerless to stop, therefore your only, flee, your only option then is to flee, isn't it? That's what you do. If you think God's defeated, <laughs> then what do you do? Well, you've got to flee or try to build a hedge around yourself and your family. But this wasn't the case. God wasn't absent in Babylon. And he's not absent in Babylon today. One of the first things that Daniel tells his readers is that it was God who delivered Israel and their king into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Ouch! Did you read that correctly? It was God who, who was ultimately behind the best and the brightest and the youngest, being carted off to Babylon. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? It is confronting until you actually grasp what God is actually on about in the world and what he's on about, what role he has for you as his people to play in the secular cities of the world today. In human wisdom, the Babylonians thought that they would actually defeat Israel through their re-education project and through making them assimilate into Babylonian society. But little known to them and little known to the people around us, God has his own plans. And God was working in reverse, not through assimilation, but through revelation, revealing himself in and through the lives of his people, the people who he took to Babylon. who learned to practice what I'm going to term discerning accommodation so that they could thrive in the hostile context and bring glory to God. Now, what's assimilation? It's a big word. Assimilation is when you embrace the claims and concerns and commitments of the dominant culture. It's the path of least resistance. It doesn't raise any questions or any concerns. You become just like everyone else in thought, action and values. Accommodation is, is, uh, is different. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not a wholesale acceptance of everything, nor is it an outright rejection of everything. It's to actually understand the people you live with, what they believe, how they see the world, and then it's to choose to live alongside them even though you see the world differently. And last line there, discerning accommodation. This is when you actually add God, the God element, to the process of accommodation and seek God's wisdom to know what to reject and what to accept. And that's what I'm calling us to today, to become people who practice discerning accommodation. The way that the Babylonians tried to get the Hebrew people to assimilate is really important for us to understand because it's actually still a practice that's in use today in our world. King Nebuchadnezzar tried to get the Jews to assimilate to Babylonian life, and he did it in in four ways that are in the text. One was to bring a large group of Hebrew elite to his cultured city. In other words, take them out of their own environment and bring them to his. Secondly, to give them new Babylonian names in order to change how they saw themselves, their identities. And three, by running a compulsory re-education program, teaching them 
the language and the literature of Babylon so that they, that would, uh, they would imbibe that themselves. And lastly, the fourth thing was by winning their hearts and their minds and their tummies through food and wine. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? <laughs> ever, ever experienced that plan? <laughs> I think it's going on pretty well today. Now we might wonder, where is God and why would God allow that? We might also think that the only way to survive is to get out of there or to build a wall around ourselves and the, and the lives of our loved ones. But what's really interesting, I think, in this first chapter is that is not what Daniel and his friends did. The Jews who had been taken into exile wrestled with actually how they should live while they're in exile. They thought about whether they should try and create a ghetto sort of life to, you know, to, to protect themselves or whether they should treat their stay as just a short-term thing that God was going to bring to an end very quickly. You know, don't make any roots, don't, try and, don't make any friends, don't comply with what's going on. In fact, some, some false prophets rose up amongst them and told the people these things. They said that this period of exile is going to, it's just going to be, you know, just, just a few months, don't worry, don't do anything, and that they shouldn't try and be part of Babylonian society. They shouldn't try and, and, uh, and live well in that city with King Nebuchadnezzar at all. But another prophet actually spoke up and his name is Jeremiah, and we have his writings in the Bible today. And he actually wrote a letter, and a very famous part of his letter, I'm going to show you in a moment, is that he told them that they should take up life in Babylon and that they should prepare for the long haul so that they could actually be God's people in that city at that time. Jeremiah said, The God of Israel says to all the captives, he is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. This is interesting what he says. He says, build homes and plan to stay, plant gardens and eat the food they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. And we have another grandchild in our church today. The Chans have produced another one. Thank you for that. Multiply. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Wow. This is a completely different attitude to that of the false prophets. And it tells us that the first step for thriving as God's people in a secular city is to accept that God has brought you to where you are for his purposes. Do you believe that about your life today? Do you believe that you are where God wants you to be today? Jesus prayed the same thing for his followers, didn't he, before he was crucified. In John 17, Jesus prayed for their protection while living in the world, he didn't pray that they would be sort of, you know, somehow taken out of it. He actually prayed that they would be protected. And he also made a promise. He said, in this world you will have, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It was, it was God's plan for the Hebrew exiles to survive 
and thrive in life and faith in Babylon. That was what God wants, wanted. But it was also God's plan that he would actually impact the Babylonians in a positive way through the presence of his people, of his people in that place as well. And so this doesn't mean that Daniel and his friends you know, just accepted every old thing that the Babylonians threw at them and assimilated. In fact, Daniel 1 shows us that they accepted some things and they rejected others. But it also shows us, uh, it also shows us the sort of foundation that we need in our lives for a life of spiritual resilience. Daniel recognised from the start that living in Babylon was going to be a real challenge. And so he acknowledges in verse 2 that the Babylonians were, were making this great attempt to make him and his friends become like them in thought and action and also in values. And so if we're going to survive and thrive, we also need to acknowledge that there's actually an active campaign to deconstruct your faith and to, to erase the biblical values and worldview from your life so that you take on the spirit of this age. You need to acknowledge that. There's actually real, uh, there's a real effort going on for that. And it's not just in this realm, it's also in a spiritual realm. And if you don't recognise that that's happening, then you won't be able to practise discerning accommodation, which is actually what is essential for survival. Daniel recognised what Nebuchadnezzar and his, his officials were doing, which is why in verse 8... He says, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. We need to know, notice that Daniel was selective in what he determined was going to defile him or make him lose his faith and values and identity. And it, what, we, what we need to notice is it wasn't this wholesale rejection of everything. And so this lines up with what the prophet Jeremiah was saying, doesn't it, to, the, to those who were taken into Babylon, that they should build houses and plant gardens. And so what we need to notice is that Daniel didn't make a big deal, of, he, he didn't make a big deal about some things that the Babylonians wanted them to do, like changing the, their name. The names that we know Daniel's three friends by which you all put up on the screen this morning, you know, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Are they Hebrew names? No, not one of them. They're all Babylonian names, names associated with the values and beliefs of Babylonian society. So he didn't make a big deal about that. He also didn't make a big deal about learning the literature and the language of Babylon. There was no sort of mass protest at the university with students out there on the lawns, you know, with their placards protesting and boycotting classes. There's only one thing that Daniel resolved not to do, and he resolved not to devile himself with the king's food and wine. And it seems that, that this was not even a complete ban on those things that lasted forever because actually if you read through Daniel, you'll find later on in chapter 10 that Daniel, uh, that Daniel undertakes a fast and he says, in chapter 10, he says, no meat or wine touched my lips and I used no lotions at all 
until the three weeks were over. So what does that say to us? Well, it says that in the period leading up to the fast and after the fast, that he would have eaten and drunk those things and put lotion on his body. Ultimately, we don't know why Daniel refused to eat and drink the king's food and wine. It could have been because you know, they were sacrificed to idols. It could have been because they were not according to, you know, they would have been deemed unclean in, in Jewish law. But we're not told why he refuses. And I think that it has, actually has more to do with Daniel's conscience and what he and his friends saw as being dangerous to them and their own spiritual journey at that time. Food and wine were possibly an area in their life that they felt that they could actually be easily seduced. It's important to listen to how they then approached this dilemma. They approached the king's chief eunuch and they requested, not demanded, that they be allowed to disregard the king's orders. And so what we find here is that wisdom's at work in these young guys. It shows that these teenagers hadn't been raised just to, uh, they, they had been raised to pray and to think and to reason through, reason about their lives. And they hadn't just, you know, been taught to blindly accept some sort of list of rules. They digested a set of do's and don'ts from their parents and just rattled them off. Because when, and when left to their own devices, do's and don'ts are not actually adequate for navigating life in captivity or life in a secular world. And for that, for that navigating that successfully, what you need is God's discernment. You need discernment from God. That's where wisdom of Proverbs 22.6 speaks truth when it says, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So Daniel didn't just have strong convictions, he also had wisdom and humility. He approached the king's overseer and with wisdom and humility and the official was actually moved by this. He acted, uh, Daniel was acting just like the examples of his forefathers and mothers. The examples of Joseph and Esther, whom he would have heard about in Jewish history, he actually took their qualities and applied them to his situation and was able to win over his superiors. But the king's official was not without wisdom either. You see, he still had to face King Nebuchadnezzar, didn't he? And he could have lost his job and his head if things hadn't have gone well with, 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 uh, the, the, with these guys refusing to eat the food and wine. And so what they seemed to come to was this impasse and often in life, we come to impasses, don't we? It's sort of like black or white. It's sort of this or that. And there first seemed to be only two options available to Daniel and his friends and the king's eunuch. And one was that Daniel and his friends would defile themselves completely and assimilate. Or on the other hand, their new friend, the official, would let them do what they wanted and lose his head. And so it was sort of like, seemed like a no-win situation. But Daniel, what does Daniel do? He actually proposes a third option. 
And in Daniel 1, 12 to 13, he says, Put your servants to a 10-day test and deal with us based on what you see. Essentially, this was a step of faith. And so Daniel was convinced that this was a line in the sand, a red line that him and his friends shouldn't cross over, that they'd learned from discernment from God. And we also need discernment and wisdom in order to know what lines we shouldn't cross, but also what lines we can cross over so that we can thrive and live in a secular city. And believers of all ages face similar decisions today, don't we, about a whole range of issues. And to survive and thrive in a secular world, we need to prepare ourselves and we need to be preparing our children and our grandchildren to be discerning. But what is it that defiles us today in a modern, in a modern secular city? What are the lines that we shouldn't cross today? Obviously, there are things that God has told us that are unacceptable in all times and places, and we need to read Scripture and uh, learn those. But there's also a lot of issues that are not clear, aren't there? There are, there are, um, there are things which are nuanced. There are things in Scripture that, we're not, that, that, uh, that we know are not good for us or beneficial for us and could destroy us if we practice them I imagine that you want me to tell you what they are. I'm not going to. Because actually that's the whole point you see here of Daniel chapter 1. It's not about giving you a list of do's and don'ts because a list of do's and don'ts won't help you thrive in a secular city. What Daniel is showing us is that we each need what we each need uh, is to discern the things. Each of us need to individually Discern the things that will erode your soul. (laughs) And we need to seek God's help to not cross the lines on those things. In many ways, eating the raw food and wine might seem like a small thing to us, particularly because we're now living in a Christian era where we have so few regulations about that. But the Bible says that if we're not faithful in the small things, how will we be faithful in the big things? And so this decision and stand that Daniel and his friends made, it actually establishes a pattern in their lives which they'll go on and use as they encounter other more difficult situations further on uh, in the book. And so therefore to thrive in a secular city, we need to establish foundations in our life That will enable us and our children to be discerning and help us to discern and decide and stand firm about the things that we face. This is why we need to be people who practice discerning accommodation every day. Sometimes I think we think that Christianity is like a set and forget thing. You know, we've got all those devices to set it up, way she runs forever. Don't have to touch it again. But it's not. You see, the Christian life is not a set and forget life. It's actually this dynamic relationship with God through his Holy Spirit in which you're becoming more and more sensitive to his voice so that you you know what will damage your soul and what will give you life. 
The royal food was the issue that Daniel, for, for, for Daniel and his friends. I would have objected to other things. You might have objected to... I, I wouldn't like my name being changed. Not that I'm that connected to Ian, but, uh, you know, maybe I just would have been a bit recalcitrant about that. But there are other things that I might have objected to or you might have objected to. But this is the point. You see, to eat the royal food and to drink the royal wine was to go against Daniel's conscience at that time. To eat and drink the royal food and wine was was to compromise himself and his friends. But it could be different for each of us. And so we read about this in, in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, uh, you say I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial and not everything is constructive. And so there's tremendous freedom in, in Christ for us today. Tremendous freedom. Unbelievable freedom. But some people will be affected by that freedom more than others. And we shouldn't use our freedom in a way that actually harms others, and we shouldn't do things ourselves that actually harm ourselves and our own consciences. And he uses an example. He says, if someone says to you, this food has been offered as a sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of that person, but also for your own sake, for your own conscience. You've got to take care of your own conscience before God. The test of what is acceptable to eat and acceptable behaviour in, gen- in general in the New Testament comes down to a matter of conscience. And our job is to discern what is right and pleasing to God from what he says is pleasing to him in his word and through prayer. And so that immediately says to you and me that that means I need to actually have this dynamic relationship with God. I can't just go to a list of things. Oh, yeah, that's out, that's out. That's in, that's out. The official listened to Daniel and allowed him and his friends to abstain from eating the royal food and wine. And what we find in the passage is that the 10-day test was successful. They looked fantastic at the end of it. This is not an advertisement for a vegetarian diet or something. This is something else much deeper going on here. They also were judged by Nebuchadnezzar to be smarter than all the magicians and mediums and they were given these really important jobs in the king's service. Now this would never have happened if they had just said, nah, we're not participating in any of this, don't change my name, don't give me that learning. You know, They would have been sidelined or most likely killed. But they were able to see that God was ultimately in control of their situation. And by practicing discerning accommodation, they determined that they could participate in other things. Times will come when they're tested on other things. But then, but when that happens, they won't just rely on their own wisdom because they've actually learned to discern or look to the world for answers. They'll look to God for discernment because they have learned this foundational wisdom in their life from the very beginning. What's your plan for surviving life in a secular city today? What's your plan for your kids? Do you have a plan? 
How will you and your family thrive in a secular world and be resilient followers of Jesus? You need a plan. Everyone needs a plan. The way that Daniel and his friends model for us the way they survived and thrived is by practising discerning accommodation. Discernment is not just a matter of human wisdom. It's gained by being in touch with God. It's gained from understanding the biblical worldview and what pleases and displeases God as told to us in Scripture. But you can't practise discerning accommodation if you just use a list of rules and regulations because life is much more nuanced than that and you know that. You also can't learn to practice discerning accommodation just by spending one hour a week, a couple of times a month in church. Think about how much exposure you're getting to the ideas and values of the secular world. You know that thing that pops up on your phone, screen time, that you gasp at each week? <gasps> really? <laughs> nah. And then you try and say, oh, no, I wasn't really looking at the screen. I was, I was reading the Bible on my phone. But you think about the time. TV, Netflix, magazines, music, advertising, internet, games, movie, uni, school, work. Those hours add up. This is like another full-time job in your life. To be able to discern what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, Paul says you need to be thinking about such things all of the time. You need God's truth written on your heart and this requires you to be in an ongoing relationship with God in which you read his word and you talk to him in prayer and you wrestle with his word and with him about everything so that you can understand his perfect and pleasing will for you in your life. And to build resilient kids, you need to talk to them about the world and all that is in it. Sometimes as Christians, we, we sweep those things under the carpet. So that means talking about everything, everything, and especially what God says about what pleases him and what displeases him. But also one of the things I've found in my life to be really important is to talk about how I struggle with these things with my children, like to, to tell my children, I struggle with this. This is how I've struggled. This is how I'm struggling. It's, it's this, it's, you need to actually, they need to have something tangible to actually grapple with. Oh, my dad, he, he struggles with that. And this is how he goes about grappling with that and discerning what to accept and what to reject in his life. Do you do that with your kids? That's how they become resilient. That's how they learn to know what to do. You model it to them. And so God has a purpose for Daniel and his friends beyond our own survival, or beyond their own survival. But he also has a plan for us, I believe, as a community in this city where we live. You see, God allowed Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and others to go into exile because through them he would reveal his glory to the Babylonians. For the Babylonians to experience God's glory, it required people 
who would trust God and who would be in touch with him and who knew him and who were depending on him for his guidance every day in their life. The last verse of Daniel, of Daniel 1 rather, it's a bit of a spoiler. You know, there should be a spoiler alert next to it, but it's a good spoiler because it tells us what's going to actually happen at the end of this period of exile. You see, this is only round one of this very long battle for the hearts and minds of the Hebrew youth. And so by practising discerning accommodation, they're able to survive and thrive and bring glory to God. That's what it's telling us. But God doesn't say after chapter one that they all went home and lived happily ever after. (laughs) The end. What it says, it's really interesting. I don't know if you picked it up. It says, Daniel remained in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. And you might think, oh, what does that mean? Well, what that tells us is that means there's a period of about 70 years. And Daniel survived 70 years. He survived four other kings and and, and rulers of Babylon who came and went until the whole, this people were actually liberated again. They thrived. They survived, friends. And so Daniel gives his readers here the spoiler alert because in the chapters that are to follow, we wonder whether they're going to survive or not. And they're going to experience far tougher issues than the issues they face right here and now. But what Daniel is encouraging us to see is, is also that by setting our lives on the right foundation, by building a relationship with God in which we discern his will for us in the place and times we live in, to understand what is good and pleasing to him and what is also soul-destroying and life-threatening and just downright evil, these things and, and what will help us to endure and experience liberation, this is what we need to learn, friends. And so this is actually more of a robust relationship with God that we need to actually establish. You can't do the set lists. It's about relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God this morning, I want to encourage you to start a relationship with him this morning. And if your relationship with God is stalled, then I want to encourage you to to talk to him about it and to get it restarted because that's the way you're going to survive in a secular city. Friends, I'm getting excited. I don't know why, I'm just uh, getting excited because I'm actually I'm really excited about this passage because I really think it has some value for us. It has value for me. I want to survive and thrive in a secular city. What do you need to do in your life today so that you can become a person who practices discerning accommodation every day? Perhaps you, need to, perhaps you need some help to learn how to read the Bible and understand so you can understand it, not just read it, but understand it. And what I want to say today is if that's you, then you need to get help today and there's people in this congregation who want to help you. You can see me, you can see Mark Chan up there, you can see one of the Connect Group leaders, Chris down here. We want to help you, one of our deacons. Perhaps you don't know how to talk to God, which is what we call prayer. You don't know how to discern his voice, which is what we were talking about. Don't leave here without actually having a conversation with about that because there's, 
there's people here who want to help you learn to do that. One of the best ways to grow your relationship with God is being part of a connect group where you learn about God, learn together with others and learn from his word and learn to pray and pray for others. Learn to be accountable for your life to others. Friends, don't leave here today without making a plan of action and setting it in motion as the band comes up to sing our last song. The question that I want to leave with you is what step, what step will you take today to make sure that you thrive in a secular city? That's the question I'm, I'm putting out to you. What step are you going to do? There's a step to take. Whether you've been a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, there's a big step to make. Whether you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years, there's steps to take to reignite that, to reestablish that. What are you going to do today? Thanks, Perry.